um, knows this or does it at Brandeis. Um, but technically, the, the hour and a half long classes, which are everyone thinks are 80 minutes long, are actually 75 minutes long. That is that you can, there, I did have one colleague who was um, very concerned, he, he was a leftist and very concerned that Brandeis get no free work out of him. So he would teach 75 minutes and not a second longer if he had a like two to three 20 classes, actually a two to three 15 class. And the reason is that we have to do the, the, the accreditation and the requirements for credit is, um, is essentially three, 39, 50, 39 times 50 minutes. That is, that you have three classes a week, three 50-minute classes for 13 weeks. And if you have two classes a week, then you still want 150 minutes a week. So that's two times 75. So that's our arithmetic lesson for the day. I thought but semester was 16 weeks. Not here. No. I mean, it may be 16 calendar weeks, but that's because of all the vacations. Okay. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's the, the require, the, for accreditation, mm -hmm. you have to have th 39 contact hours. And so that's 13, three hour a week. And going over, he was about cheated by the school? He would have felt that he was giving free labor. And as a Marxist, which he sort of was, labor was the coin of, um, that, that you measured exploitation by. But he so, was a professor. Yeah. He you didn't enjoy his work? Or? Oh, I'm sure he did. <laughs> he just um, hated Brandeis more than he liked his work or something. I don't know. Hated, hated those who were over him. Hated the administration. Hated the man, as we used to say, more than he enjoyed his work. To me, it seemed weird, because the problem that most of us have is that we've gone way too long, right? Like, classes never end on time. So... It's not, you know, it's, you, sh you should see this as a great bargain that you're getting for your tuition classes that go on too long. Okay, we were looking at the boat stealing scene, and there was one question that we didn't quite answer, which is, um, there's partly what, I'm, I, what I want to ask you about is whether there's something going on there which no one ever talks about, and which is not a very great importance, but it certainly seems to be there, and on some level or other, it seems to be there intentionally. Wordsworth gets some memories can't be right, which is to say that they, it, is, it is scientifically, optically, in this case, impossible for them to be right. And one of them, which is an interesting one, it's not not that really not not important in itself, but maybe it is. Is he in the skating scene? He describes. Do you remember um, the description of skating when it's really cold outside and how they go outside and whoop and holler and skate? And at one point he says, "And one of us might take off and cut across the reflex of a star, so there'll be a reflection of the star in the ice, and one of the skaters will see the reflection and just skate right over that reflection, which is a really cool idea." cutting across the reflection of a star in the ice. It's a beautiful image of, of that winter fun, but it's actually impossible because as you approach the reflection, it's like trying to get closer to a star in the sky. The reflection will move ahead of you. 
It's like trying to get to the end of the rainbow. So if he has a memory of cutting across the reflection of a star, it's a false memory. It's a fake memory. And so it could be that in some sense, what's happening in the memory is that he's putting things together and there's a certain kind of wishfulness to it, that in the memory, it's possible to do what's impossible to do in reality, which is to cut across the reflection of a star. On the other hand, it's possible that you could see someone else cut across the reflection of a star. That is, that if you see a reflection of a star and then you see another skater, they could skate over where you're seeing the reflection. Does this make sense to people? Just Yeah, so they could skate over where you're seeing the reflection. And then again, it would be something distanced from you. The possibility of that correspondence of the skate with the reflection of the star is a possibility that doesn't belong to first-person experience. You can't have that experience of cutting across the reflex of the star. However, someone else can. And this is what he says, right? We're okay. Leaving the tumultuous throng. Leaving the tumultuous throng. Yeah, sorry. What page? Just tell me what page. Oh, one seventy-eight. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, Yeah, to cut across the image of star. Yeah, it's reflex. I think um, in um, eighteen fifty. Yours says reflex. So that's the eighteen fifty version. Yeah. So. I retired into a silent bay, a sportively glanced sideways, leaving the tumultuous throng in order to cut across the image of a star that gleamed upon the ice. So he's not leaving them to cut across the image of a star? Oh, you mean, yeah, they can cut across that yeah. image of a star, not me. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to, no. Because he's going apart and then he looks back at them. Yeah, he's, he's leaving them in order to do it. Mm-hmm. That is... It seems like you could have both readings though, right? Like he's, I don't think so. I mean, I think I think grammatically you can, mm-hmm. but I think like that... Like, I'll leave you to lecture on Wordsworth, you know, while I go right. out and sit under a tree and contemplate nature. Yeah, but you don't, you wouldn't just go let, oh, look at that throng of people. They want to cut across the image of a star. That's good. Let them. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that can't be what he means. What he's doing is he's he's putting himself, he's making himself the the separate being the singled out being, which he does all the time, um, which he does in the boat stealing scene just before this. And what and the way he breaks away from the crowds, that's a that's a through line in the prelude, is Wordsworth breaking away from crowds and uh, from the from the from the start to the finish. And um, you'll see it happen in London also, um, in the Bartholomew's uh, fair. Is that what section. the is supposed to be? The he's not the recluse, but it, but essentially, yes. That is that he, like Ma- Matthew in the Matthew poems that we did, is a kind of very early version of this, that there are these figures who are hermit-like, and even in Tintern Abbey, which we didn't talk about, but in, and which I hope we'll get a chance to, but we may not, in Tintern Abbey, there is um, the place looks like, the, the landscape that he's revisiting, um, looks like a place where um, a hermit would live, where by his fire the hermit um, uh, sits alone. So that idea of separation from the crowds, that's something that you get over and over in Wordsworth. And it's the beginning of the prelude, that I was in the city, but I'm finally free, and I can go wherever I want. I'm no longer pent up 
in this populous city. So, yeah. No, I just think it's interesting, because the reason I was looking for this passage is because I had the memory of this scene was him chasing a star. Yeah. Um, so it feels as if I'm then misremembering the poem. That's interesting. Because I'm, like, I'm just, I think it's interesting to point out like the optical impossibility. Yeah. Because um, apparently, like, I didn't, because he's definitely not saying I chased a star, but that's how I'd always visualized it. Yeah. Well, you know, te- again, technically, you could turn it into the, um, you could turn it into, so do you guys know the difference in between um, purpose clauses and result clauses? So the same word is used in Latin. It's, it's, a, it's a distinction in Latin grammar, and the same word is used in Latin for purpose and for result. And it captures something about how we think about the relationship of an intention to the fulfillment of that intention. And you can have that here with the word to also. So assuming that it's Wordsworth who um, is imagining cutting across the image of a star, does everyone, does everyone agree with that? Grammatically, it could be I left the crowd to do it. They wanted to cut across an image of a star, um, and so I left that tumultuous throng that wanted to cut across the image of a star, and... Um, now I'll go on with my story. So does everyone agree that that's not what it means? Yeah. Okay, technically it could mean that, but it would go, it would be, it would be, it, it would be semantically a little bit weird. Um, so not seldom from the upper eye retired to a silent bay or sportively glanced sideways, leaving the tumultuous throng to cut across the image of a star. If there weren't a comma there, it would be more possible but to cut across the image of a star that gleamed upon the ice. So, um, so I would glance sideways, or oftentimes when we had given our bodies to the wind and all the shadowy banks on either side came sweeping through the darkness, spinning still the rapid line of motion, then at once have I, reclining back upon my heels, stopped short. So in all the cases, he's skating with other people, but then he does something different. And so I think he's the one who is leaving the leaving the tumultuous throng, with with the because he sees the star and he leaves the throng for the star. So do we all agree with that? Do you agree with that, Ryan? Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> okay, make the argument the other way. Convince me. Well, I, Change my mind. I, mean, I don't know if I'm like too invested in it, but it's just like then how I imagine just whether or not he's putting across the star. Um, maybe it doesn't fit grammatically, but what's going to lead you away from everyone else is, is the way I visualize it, where you're skating after a star, but you're never going to reach it. So that's going to take you away from the group. Okay. Yeah. In the version that I'm reading, it actually has, so it says, leaving the tumultuous bomb to cut across the reflex of a star that fled and blind still before me came upon the glass. Okay, that's the version I've read before, that's okay. why I remembered it that way. Exactly. Okay. So that's the that's 1850. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, what I, that's exactly where I wanted to get, that in the 1850 revision, he fixes that. He fixes what is an optical impossibility in the 1805 version. Mm-hmm. So, yes, thank you. Um, no, I mean, the, the 1850 has a, lot of, has a lot of fixes in it. And um, they're partly interesting because they're usually accurate to reality, 
but they also bring out what was maybe more intensely wishful in the earlier versions. It's when people remember stuff that isn't so that you have really interesting memories. That's, you don't have to be a Freudian to think that false memories are the most interesting ones. It's like if you remember that time when you learned to tie your shoe, and that is in fact the time that you learned to tie your shoe, that's not that interesting. But if you, learn, if you remember that time when you were trying to tie your shoe and a, um, a, a, a scorpion stung you, but you just shrugged it off and continued tying your shoe, and then your mom says, there was no scorpion there. We took you to the zoo a year later and you saw a scorpion. Then it's interesting that you're putting those two things together. Yeah, I still, I've never been in a helicopter, but I have this memory. Memory of being real. in it. Really? Wow. It might, have, wow. it might have been a dream at some point. I don't remember. Wow. But it's really bizarre, because I know that I've never been in one. So. How do you know? You've asked. I couldn't have been. There's no way. Why would I, as a child, why would, who would take me in a helicopter? I was in a helicopter as a child. I was, I was like too, at four. Five, four or yeah. five, yeah. Yeah, it was a birthday present for me. <laughs> it was really boring. <laughs> I thought it was so fun. At least that's my memory, Radio Falls. Yeah, uh-huh. right? uh, yeah, I'm sure it was. <laughs> you probably never in a helicopter, and you probably were. No, <laughs> I, I no, I was definitely in a helicopter. Okay, so no, so that's really interesting. But so I think that's what's interesting here is that you can see in the 1850 Prelude he fixes something that he, which means that even Wordsworth knows he got it wrong in the 1805 Prelude. Um, and I also think the comma won't do that. If there weren't a comma, then I would leave the tumultuous throng. I would leave them to their own devices. But with the comma after throng, you wouldn't. Then the question, though, is one way you could make sense of this is I would leave them with the purpose of cutting across the image of a star, which is what you get in the 1850 version. That is, I did it to cut across the reflex of a star in 1850, but failed. So, you know, I left class early to try to register for Flesh's English 11 next year, but it was already filled up. So that would mean you do it to, for a purpose, to do something, but it didn't work. Um, the other possibility is the result, which is something like, um, I opened the door only to find that he had already checked out. And so I didn't open the door because I wanted to find that he checked out. I opened the door, and the result was that he had checked I mean, and, and what I found was that he had checked out. So one is purpose. I opened the door to look for him. And the other is result. I opened the door to find him gone. And do you see how those two twos mean something different? I opened the door in order to look for him, where two stands for in order to. I opened the door to look for him. And the other is, I opened the door with the consequence that I found that he was gone. So I opened the door to find that he was gone. I opened the, it's like I opened the door only to find that he right. was gone. Yeah. 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 So one is, um, this is the result of what happened, and the other is, I did it for this reason. And so the two here could be a purpose clause, as it is in 1850. I left the throng because I wanted to cut across the image of a star, but I couldn't, because you can't do that. So it's possible that it means that, and it certainly means that in 1850. That is, I left the throng in order to cut across the image, or the reflex of a star, but I failed, because you can't do it. 
1805, though, it looks like he thought he did do it. So do you agree with that, perhaps? A little? No, I think sure. that's interesting. Okay. Because okay, yeah, yeah. also that the boat scene, it does, when the uh, mountain moves higher and higher, that's always kind of incomprehensible. Yeah, why is that, that's, you know? yeah, why is that incomprehensible, that the mountain should loom higher and higher? So it should stay, like, on the same line of sight. Like, it should be where the top of the cliff is. Now the cliff would look lower in the mountain. Right. Yeah, but the difference between them, so just try this sometime. I mean, if you've ever tried to climb, um, you know, a mountain in New Hampshire and you keep thinking this is the final ridge, and then there's some... False summits. False summits, yeah. And it's because you can't see past them until you get past them and they're higher and higher. But if you go, you know, back to the valley, you can see the true summit from far away. And um, you can even say, I got that high, and you feel good about yourself. But when you get close up, you're not seeing the true summit. You're seeing ridge after ridge after ridge until you finally get to the final one. So it's certainly the case. So here's what's right about the boat ceiling scene. That let's say, actually I should do it like this. Let's say this is the ridge and this is the mountain behind it, the peak behind it. So if he's here and he looks up, all he can see is the ridge. There's no, there's no um, line of sight that takes him to here. So here, the first place that you can see the peak behind is when he gets to here, right? That's how far he has to get to see this peak behind. Okay, if he goes farther, what's going to happen is this is going to shrink faster in his perception than what's behind it. Because what's, you know, if I hold this chalk here and I hold it here, it's half the size. Just doing that, it goes from, well, let's see, it's, if I go here, it's like this for me. If I go here, it's, um, yeah, it's just about half. Try it. You would have to hold your fingers up for angular to get a sense of uh, its angu the angular space that it takes. Right? Oh, I know what you're saying. Like... You know the size of it, so you don't actually see the change in size. Um, that's called um, accommodation, I believe is the name for that. But if you know the size of something, it's where the moon illusion comes from. You know the moon illusion that if you see the moon on the horizon, you can't believe how big it is, and then three hours later you see it right overhead, and it's just, you know, a normal moon? It's not actually bigger on the horizon. What's happening is you actually get a much better sense of how big it is because you can see other things on the horizon that, that whose size you know. So if you see the moon behind the Prue, you know the Prue is really tall, and then the moon is like bigger than the Prue, so it's really big. But then when it's straight overhead, you don't have a Prue to compare it to. And the thing is, the Prue is in fact really small because it's at a very great distance. But what you do is you assign to it the size that you know it has, or the size that a tree has, or something like that. That's how movie, um, uh, movie illusions work. That's why King Kong, very famously, can be three feet tall but if you put him next to really tiny trees, he looks like he's 30 feet tall. 
but they're just toy trees. So same here, that, but, and it's also the case that the farther away something is, the less it recedes in size. So from here to here is halfway. To get this to be half its size again, I probably have to go to here. To get it to be half its size again, you know, I can see the chalk there. Maybe that is a quarter of the size of the chalk if I hold it at arm's length. So the farther away something is, the less it recedes, the less it shrinks every foot you go away from it. It, it, does everyone know this? Is this obvious? Am I saying the obvious, or are you like, wow, that's cool, I did, math is fun? All right, I don't want to go that far. But does everyone know that? It recedes at a logarithmic scale, at a logarithmic, um, uh, you use a logarithmic scale to measure its, um, how it changes in size. But it, it wouldn't rise up to block the stars, though. No, exactly. So that's what's wrong. So this idea that this part is looking like a smaller and smaller part of this, that the farther away he goes, so here he can see the top. When he goes a little farther away, he can see this much. When he goes farther away still, he can see this much, which means the relative sizes of the peak behind and the crag up front the peak is getting larger and larger with respect to the crag up front. Okay, so it, that's not hard, right? You can picture that? Yeah. But even though the relative sizes are getting, even though the relative size of the cliff is getting bigger, both of them are getting smaller. Yeah, but both of them are actually getting smaller. Yeah. So the, re so the two relative sizes, this is looking bigger and bigger compared to this. It's looming up more and more. There are lots of movies that show you, that, that give you this as a sort of fun moment in the movie, like when the helicopter suddenly shows up behind the mountain. Um, but so the relative sizes is this is getting clearly larger and larger than that is. But they're both getting absolutely smaller. And that's what he's getting wrong. Because what he says is that the farther away he gets, the more this does what, Ryan? Uh, lots of the stars. Yeah, so if there's stars here, star, I'm not drawing a star, damn it. Whatever. Um, <laughs> you do a triangle and then you go through. Oh, you start? Yeah, there you go. And then you no, go, oh, no, no. Then I get a star, damn yeah. it, that's right. There. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so the farther away he gets, so let's say there's a star here, and let's say there is a star um, here. Okay, so from here he can't see this star. From here he still can't see that star. But if he goes here, then he'll be able to see that star. So the farther away he gets, the stars will be to the peak as the peak is to the crag. The farther away he gets from the peak and from the crag, the more this even larger thing behind him will loom up. So that if he's 50 miles away, He'll see all the stars, and he won't be able to see either the crag or the peak at all anymore. So when he says in the boat-stealing scene, 
that um, growing still in stature, the huge cliff rose up between me and the stars. It can't. This is uh, page 177, line 413. I struck and struck again, and growing still in stature, the huge cliff rose up between me and the stars, and still with measured motion, like a living thing, strode after me. So it can't be rising up between him and the stars, unless you take the stars somehow as an impression that he has only of background. And it's actually what he calls the cliff rising up between him and the stars is in fact simply his sense that the cliff is looking larger and larger than the crag. And, but it can't be rising up between him and the stars. So this is again a memory that can't be right. The cliff can't be blotting out the stars. The farther away he gets, the more of the sky he should be able to see, not the less of it. So this, again, is a memory that's false and comes from a superimposition of two visual images that in reality can't be superimposed. So I don't, as I recall, he did not fix that in the 1850 prelude. Um, so if he knew it, he knew it in some psychological sense. That is, that was the memory that he had, and it was striking because it can't be true. So it's all the more powerful because it can't be true. Later on, at the end of the prelude in book 13 of the 1805 and book 14 of the 1850, he will talk about himself as, uh, he says, I finally come back to myself. And he says, a clouded and a waning moon. That is, I was a moon that was clouded and waning. But then in 1850 he realizes that a waning moon means a moon that's getting darker and darker and that's not what he wanted to say except maybe it was what he wanted to say so he changes that to a clouded not a waning moon so that's another very interesting uh, change that he doesn't want in 1850 or it's 1845 is when he did his last revisions of, of what's called the 1850 prelude it was published in 1850, that's why it's called the 1850 Prelude. When he did the last revisions, he had changed clouded and waning to clouded not waning. So that not is maybe means that 40 years earlier he did feel himself waning, and now 40 years later at the age of 75, he doesn't want to say that anymore. He wants to feel that he wasn't waning, that he hadn't lost the powers that Crab Robinson saw him losing already, and that everyone else saw him as losing, that Browning saw him as losing. So those are three really interesting optical or astronomical moments where the, where the memory or the formulation is, can't be right or is at least objectionable in the last case, in the clouded and waning moon is at least objectionable. So that's an interesting thing to notice. Okay, back to the intimations ode. Why do I always lose my place? Thank you.
Okay, so the soul that rises with us, our life star, we now know is Venus and not the sun, because it will fade into the light of common day. It had elsewhere its setting cometh from afar. So where is that elsewhere? So one thing to notice then is that its setting isn't here. So elsewhere can simply mean, I don't know where it's set. It comes from somewhere else. But in the terms of the poem, where is that elsewhere? Where is the soul setting in order to rise on earth? In some yeah, in some platonic heaven. So the soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. So to rise here, it's set somewhere else, and where it's set then would have been in heaven. It turns out. What does our life star mean? This. Oh wait, no, it's not the sun. No, it's Venus. It's Venus oh, right. as the morning star. Okay. So it rises in the morning. It's Venus as the morning star. And then you don't see it again at night. Right, and you don't see it again at night, and it's set elsewhere from here, which would then be in heaven. Um, he's about to say heaven is where the imperial palace once it came. Um, the heavenly glories it hath known in the imperial palace whence it came. Um, what else does our life star mean? Our soul? Yeah. What is, if you say, um, do you know, do you know uh, Sonnet 116, Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment? No? This is all these high school sonnets that they don't do in high school anymore. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. Love's not love that alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark, a star whose height's unknown, although, whose, whose, whose um, worth's unknown, although its height be taken. So generally, as a metaphor, if you call something your star, sometimes you'll call it a lodestar. Do you know what lodestar means? You've never heard the term lodestar? He was always my lodestar, and when it turned out that he was kissing women without their consent, I didn't know what to do. A sentence like that? No? All right. See, this is the problem with GPS. People don't know how to do celestial navigation anymore. Um, <laughs> do you know what the North Star is? Yes. What is the North Star? Like, I know that people used to use it before GPS to navigate the world. <laughs> do you know how and why? It's the one star that doesn't move its position in the sky from our perspective. Right, exactly. That makes sense. So... It's where it is as the constellations rise and set. If you go out at um, sunset, you will see a constellation rise. And then if you wait all night, it'll set at the end of the night. So all the other stars, because constellations are constellated out of stellae, or out of stars, all the other stars will rise and set. The northern star is always in the same position of the, of the sky. And the reason is that it's right over the North Pole. So as the Earth is rotating on its axis, our relation to that star doesn't change. It's the lodestar, because that means northern star. Do you know what a lodestone is? Yeah. What? 
It's a magnetic sunny swing compass. Yes, and where does it point? North. North. To, yes. To, to, to geological. Yeah. So, um, so the lodestar is. Um, it was discovered in ancient times that um, magnets would point north and south, and they realized after a while that it was the north that was attracting them. It wasn't the south that was attracting the other um, end of the magnet, but it was the north that was attracting it, and or at least they thought it was. And um, so those were called lodestones. Magnetic stones were called lodestones. And the load star is the star to which a lodestone is the same direction as a lodestone will point. So when you call something my life's star or our life's star, it means what you navigate with, what you hold on to no matter what else happens on Earth. But you can't use Venus as a lodestar because it rises and then it disappears. It's not fixed and unmoving. It rises and then disappears. So it is somehow the thing to keep your eye on, but if you do keep your eye on it, you're not looking for what stabilizes this world, what gives this world its stability as a spatial place, you're looking for something that transcends this world. If you keep your eye on Venus, that's a kind of Copernican revolution because you're no longer thinking of this world as the center of things with the northern star as a kind of guarantee that it's the center of things because it's not moving and we can always see it. Now what you're doing is you're saying, no, what to keep your eye on is your own soul but in this world, you're not going to be able to continue to keep your eye on it. So um, the soul that rises with us, our life star, that elsewhere it's setting cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness, so that's Plato, not in entire forgetfulness. We come with amnesia, but with little scraps of what we've forgotten. So not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. So that's our true home. There's that word home again. That's our true home is God or heaven. So heaven lies about us in our infancy. So now he's gone back to a description of the first stanza. That's a kind of one-line summary of the first stanza. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. Celestial means the light of heaven. So heaven lies about us in our infancy. And then shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So even the boy is being shadowed by the prison house. This can sound pretty Blakeian, right? Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. But he beholds the light, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. So even though, as a child, you are finding a prison house begin to enclose you, 
you're still looking at the light that comes streaming at you, the light of Venus, the morning star. You can still see it, and you still feel joyful. And what you're not noticing is what's happening to you. So again, see how Blakeian that is. This is like the innocent version of the chimney sweep. That is, that if all do their duty, they do not feel harm. We're all safe and warm. It's true that um, coffins of black were, were showing up and that Tom had that dream and that all sorts of um, bad things were happening, but we could still see the truth and the light, or we can still see the truth and the light of heaven. And what this is meaning here is that the growing child doesn't realize that he is slowly being trapped by the prison house. The glory of the light, the glory that's coming from the morning star, is distracting him so he doesn't see what's happening to him. And here Wordsworth is explaining why childhood looked so great. It's not that it was as good as what preceded it, which is God or heaven. It's that what was left of it was still so glorious that the very fact that things were starting to decline already, so that you would say no, um, could, he didn't notice because there was still so much light that he was happy. Yeah. But it's different from Blake because in Blake they, the kids have to invent that glory, but... They did? Yeah, go ahead. Here it's real glory, just less glory. Yeah, um, they do have to invent it, um, but there is something that they're re recollecting, you could say, even in Blake. That is, that's the Gnostic view of Blake, that the reason the children of innocence are happy and can feel so much happiness is that they still are in touch with the eternal, and but what happens is there's a fall from the eternal to the material world and to time and to all the oppressions of time. So Blake's not saying that in the Songs of Innocence. For him, it's these are the people who are in who who are in trouble without knowing it, who are at risk without knowing it. But if you read Blake as a whole, then there's a sense that what it is that the innocent have is a pre-premonition or a preconception of what Milton or what ultimately the Blake himself will manage to, to, to reconstitute through the poetic genius. Another way of putting it is to say that, that children at the time of innocence are possessed at least somewhat with the poetic genius. But the poetic genius finally shouldn't return to childhood, which is what Thel does, but should transcend the prison house and go to the true um, realm and region of the Eternals. Would infant joy be like the god in heaven that that you're born with? Or that is your home that you come from and then leave? Or, well, it's, um, it, it's uh, 
trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home? So infant joy would be something like the closest to a mem- uh, closest to a memory of what it is you should aspire to. Okay. But not in infancy, but with complete Blakean transcendence. But that's Blake. Yeah. I, to, I mean, you can get you can get Wordsworth to be saying something somewhat similar. You can minimize the difference between Wordsworth and Blake, at least in the intimations ode. I think the problem with that is that you would ultimately be making Wordsworth. Blake is is essentially an optimistic poet. He's very, very bitter and very, very dark, and his optimism is a very long game. That is, for things to work out, you have to go through a whole lot of hell, and a whole lot of people have to go through a whole lot of hell. But ultimately, he's an optimistic poet. Um, Wordsworth isn't. And that is, even in the Intimations Ode, which looks like an optimistic poem, possibly the prelude, which looks like an optimistic poem, ultimately they're not optimistic. You can say we are seven, and you can mean we are seven, but two of you are still dead. It's not that saying we are seven somehow brings them to a higher place or makes that kind of higher place possible. And I think in general, this is something we'll talk about in the prelude, but so, so to raise a major question about Wordsworth, the question about Wordsworth, which is also, you know, what Blake is complaining about in Wordsworth when Blake claims that Wordsworth is an atheist. The question about Wordsworth is, does Wordsworth love nature or not? And the obvious and standard answer is, uh, duh, he does. Of course he does. Um, we wouldn't have an ecological movement today without Wordsworth. Without Wordsworth, no Thoreau. Without Thoreau, no ecology that there's a clear through line from Wordsworth to um, any uh, pro-nature view of the world. The beauties of nature, uh, nature preserves, leaving natural places alone. That's all due to Wordsworth. Without Wordsworth, there'd be no national parks. All of that ultimately comes out of the kind of poetry that Wordsworth was the first to write. And the idea of preserving nature and not having it destroyed by urbanization or industry or human interference, that really goes back to Wordsworth. And so in some very obvious way, he is a poet of nature. The question is, is that the truest and deepest thing that you can say about Wordsworth? So, and the answer in the Intimations Ode is, no, it's not. And one way you can say, you can see this is when he says, there was a time, let's summarize um, the first stanza, there was a time when nature seemed great. The earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. And so that seemed great, that's the important part. It seemed great, but only seemed that way. Then there's a tree of many all the trees in nature, one, a single field that I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. So he looks at nature, and nature, rather than being a place of return or truth or what really matters, 
is a place of absence. So Blake thought Wordsworth loved nature and that this made Wordsworth a kind of atheist because it meant that he didn't love anything transcending the world. He loved the material world. And not that he was a materialist. It's not that he loved money, but that he loved the world that you could find outside. And, you know, you could say, well, what about seeing... um, infinity in a grain of sand. Aren't you doing the same thing, Blake? But the answer is no. What I'm seeing in the grain of sand is something that transcends sand, and that transcendence is so powerful that you can find it in the smallest things. Everything points towards transcendence. That would be a way of summarizing that aspect of Blake. Whereas for Wordsworth, or Blake's Wordsworth, it's everything is what it should be as long as humans don't interfere with it. And so Wordsworth is a nature lover in a way that Blake absolutely isn't. And thinking of Wordsworth as a nature lover, that's the most cliched thing you can say about Wordsworth, is that he's a nature lover. And you could never say that about Blake. So... The question is, is Wordsworth a nature lover or not? Now, one of the things, so, or a nature worshiper, so let's put it that way, a worshiper of nature, where worshiper doesn't necessarily mean something overly idolatrous, but an idea that the truth is to be found in nature when not interfered with by the interferers. And one... And what that can then mean is that moments like the boat-stealing scene where he says that, he, that afterwards he was haunted by an obscure sense of guilt and then a dim apprehension of unknown modes of being. That at another point he talks about um, hearing things that do not live, well, it's there, that do not live like living men that those, that sense of things haunts nature, makes nature almost supernatural in a way that he himself said he wasn't going to do when he and Coleridge decided to write lyric, lyrical ballads. Remember, Coleridge was going to write the supernatural poems, and Wordsworth was going to write the natural ones, and so Coleridge wrote, for example, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and Wordsworth wrote, for example, Michael, and that the idea was that the natural language of natural men, unquote, or that um, what you could find in nature was quite enough for poetry. But then there are these moments, in the prelude especially, where nature is described as though it's haunted, as though it's uncanny, as though there are presences, to use another one of Wordsworth's words, that are not simply nature in its normal and everyday sense, as though there's something spooky, as though there, as he says at the end of Tintern Abbey, there's a spirit in the woods, as though in nature there is something that is spooky and uncanny and maybe a little bit scary and something that you might want to avoid. So nature as the 
touchy-feely place that lots of people think Wordsworth thinks of it as being, and that Wordsworth himself sometimes gives you warrant to think he thinks of nature as being. Ultimately, nature is not a touchy-feely place for Wordsworth, but nature becomes a place which is at least quasi-supernatural. And take seriously the word supernatural there. Supernatural means above nature. That's literally what it means. Something that can't be explained by natural terms. You have to go above nature. Super, above the natural to figure out what it is. And for Wordsworth, it sometimes feels like nature itself is supernatural. And the question is, how and why should that be? So the intimations owed is part of an answer to that. So shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy, but he beholds the light, and once it flows, he sees it in his joy. The youth, so we've gone from infant to boy to youth, the youth who daily farther from the east must travel still is nature's priest. So the youth is still a believer in nature. He has to travel farther from the east every day. That's what it somehow means to get older. Why traveling from the east? Why do you travel farther from the east? Yeah, you're traveling towards sunset. You're traveling towards the west, um, away from the east towards the west. And the... um, word occident itself means um, the place where... uh, Occidere in Latin means fall. So the Occident, or the West, is where the sun falls. And so the youth is traveling away from, the, from sunrise and towards sunset every day. And you guys have to do this every day, you youths. And you can feel here that the youth knows a little bit more what he's doing. That is, he's the one traveling. He's not just sitting there as shades of the prison house begin to close upon him. But now he has to travel every day further from the East. That is, he's got to make a living. He's got to live a life. He's got to learn how to do these things. He has to go to college. And so every day he's learning adulting. And that's what that means. Adulting is such an awful word. (laughs) I think you guys don't know how awful it is. Um, But every day he has to learn adulting. Wait, why is it so awful? Um, Because the word adult actually means um, that a process is over. So the word is turning it into into a process again. Uh, Yeah, adult means done. And what's done is growing up. Um, So the adult part of adult is short for the um, um, adolescent. So adolescent and adult are, are related words. And an adolescent is someone who is still growing. And an adult is someone for whom that process is over. It's done. Grown. It's exactly the same as um, grown up. Adult literally means grown up. So can you go grown upping? No, because it's somehow you're taking the word grow, saying it's done with, you're grown, it's already done, and now I'm grown upping. You say you're grown. Yeah, so you're growing. Good. Nice. So... Um, so the youth has to adult but he still is nature's priest and by the vision splendid is on his way attended the vision splendid is what? 
he beholds the light and whence it flows. What light is he beholding? His life star, yeah. So the vision splendid is still, he can still see his soul rising with him, his life star. And so by the vision splendid, it's on its way attended because the star is rising with him, the, the soul that rises with us, our life star. So it's rising as he goes westward, his star follows him, um, going over the uh, semicircle of the sky the hemisphere of the sky, and by the vision splendid is on its way attended. At length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. So now the day is bright enough, or there's enough light, enough ambient light from the day that you can no longer see the soul, the planet Venus. That's why Venus does disappear as morning star. It rises, the sun rises, and then Venus fades as the sky gets brighter and brighter. The sky is too bright to see Venus anymore. So that's what happens to our vision of our own soul as it comes from God. At length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. So we saw the word common where before? Yeah, there was a time when Meadow Grove and Stream, the earth into every common sight to meet its same apparelled in celestial light. So stanza five, in a sense, has recapitulated stanza one, but done it in a subtly but crucially different way. And a way to put this is to say, and I, I showed this the other day, I don't have to draw it again, that in stanza one, the place where things start and where things are at their best, the high point, is childhood. In stanza five, it turns out, no, childhood was the beginning of the decline from the high point, which was God or heaven before we were born. So instead of saying childhood and then boom, bad things happened, but childhood was great, we have God and heaven, and then bad things started happening, and childhood was the first step of bad things happening. So the bad thing that happens is the soul sets in heaven, then we get to childhood, and the soul rises there, and so it's not terrible, because we still have that star from heaven rising with us, but childhood is already the place of um, nakedness, and forgetfulness. So it's not utter nakedness, it's not entire forgetfulness, but it's already the place of nakedness and forgetfulness. And so it's already vectored towards decline. So childhood isn't what we want to return to. Childhood is the first step in the wrong direction. So that could be Blakeian, that idea. So then Earth comes in. Um, Nicole, you want to read that? Earth fills her lap. Earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own. Yearnings she hath in her own natural kind. And even with something of a mother's mind, and no unworthy aim, the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child her inmate man. Forget the glories he hath known, and that imperial palace whence he came. Okay, so paraphrase that. 
yeah. hold us prisoner, essentially, from, from what was the glory. Yeah, inmate there doesn't mean prisoner. Um, we call prisoners inmates now. Actually, that's a good example. A friend of mine is looking for examples of words in English. Apparently, this happens all the time in Japanese, and they're called pillow words, um, words that um, were used because they fit into Japanese poetry to describe everyday things or to describe things that had more common names. But these pillow words that would fill out a line in Japanese poetry then became very, very famous in some famous poems, and eventually they replaced the words in ordinary language that they um, simply originally replaced simply in a poem. So she was my friend was looking for examples of this in English, and the only the Chaucerian one that I came up with right away was rooster, which replaces the word cock. And it's not really for poetic reasons, it's for not using an obscene word in 19th century America. So if you talk about a cock, people say, ooh, he said cock. Um, so people started saying rooster. It was, a, it was, it was a century of beavises and buttheads. And Elizabeth Bishop, she has her um, Roosters, yeah. And Marion Moore was like, no, it should be cocks. Oh, did she say that? Yes. That's great. That was Bishop's break with Moore. She's was like, it really? Oh, yeah. And I didn't know like, that. It can't be cock. And it's like... <laughs> it would be, well, it would be too obvious if it were cock. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the point is the roosters are men. It's an extremely feminist poem. Um, but yeah, so it's like just her like, poetic kind of like independence from, from the research. That's, that's hilarious. I did not know that. Yeah. Elizabeth Bishop's poem, Roosters, is really amazing. Um, that's great. Anyhow, I think inmate is a, sim- is a similar word. That is, that inmate simply meant someone who lived in a house, um, lived in a house with you. Was if there are several people living in a house, you would talk about the inmates of the house. I think I think Jane Eyre does um, talks about the inmates of the house that uh, she is growing up in at the start of Jane Eyre and later. Um, and I think Wordsworth will use the word in the Prelude later as well, and so I think that. When in 20th century American it started meaning prisoners, like the inmates at a prison, I think that was a euphemism and a kind of poetic euphemism for prisoners um, <laughs> who have no choice. So don't be, don't be misled. Have you ever said misled? Have you ever thought it was pronounced misled? M I S L E D? I had students who did. Um, misled. Misled, yeah. They said, people who read a lot, they would say, well, he was misled by his, by his business partner because <laughs> they didn't realize it was actually the past tense of mislead. No? All right. It's ironic. What? It's ironic. It's ironic, yeah. Uh, they, were, they were misled by misled. Yeah. Um, so don't be misled by the word inmate here. Uh, what it means is someone who lives in the asylum well, asylum would even be another one. Um, an asylum is a place of refuge. Oh, yeah. you taught us this yeah. last semester with the, 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 those bedlam schools and something, yeah. right? Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good, nice. So, um, so the inmate here would be someone who is being taken care of by the nurse. So the homely nurse, and what does the word homely mean? 
plane. Yeah, it's uh, the kind of person you would associate with home, not some, someone exotic or exciting. It's a euphemism, as is the word plane. Um, but here, here, I think Wordsworth wants a little bit of the sense of not home, but home-like. So God is our home, but the homely nurse is someone who is trying to give us a home here. So there you are living in East, and this is your house. Welcome home. Um, as it says on the bridge to the gym, um, to Gosman, right? Yeah. Do you guys see that? This is our house. This is our house. Welcome home. Yeah. yeah, but that's not It's not really your east, house. But no, no, no. It's not that far from East. But whatever. Okay. It's just... <laughs> I was just remembering suddenly that Brandeis had this little slogan, yeah. which it would be, yeah, while you're inmates here, in the good sense of <laughs> inmates, while you're inmates here, you are, um, uh, Brandeis is homely for you, home-like, offering you some of the experiences of home, wants you to think of it as home. So that's what Earth is doing for us. And she has no unworthy aim. She's something of a mother's mind. What? Oh, I was like looking over and trying to ask if there's somebody like walking around the woods and I was very confused. <laughs> You're fine. Oh. That person in the black jacket? Yeah. Huh. I don't know. I just like saw movement in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Are they doing. I have no idea. Is that a flower? He loves me, he loves me not. No, I don't know. They have no idea that there are a lot of people um, in conservation biology that have oh. to take pictures of wildlife. Oh, I see. For, uh, for iNaturalist. I see. Citizen science. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. That's great. So maybe that could be See, and it's all because of Wordsworth. <laughs> this would not be happening without Wordsworth. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm not sure that's the plan. No, I'm not sure either. <laughs> um, no. I'm so distracted. Wow, the world is amazing. Okay. So, Earth doesn't have an unworthy aim. We like Earth. Earth is trying to comfort us for what we've lost. So, Earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own. So childhood is full of nature and full of all the good things about childhood. Yearning she hath in her own natural kind. So she loves us. And even with something of a mother's mind and no unworthy aim, the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child. So we're foster children of earth. Her inmate man forget the glories he hath known and that imperial palace whence he came. And now what we're going to get is what Wordsworth is doing with considerable subtlety here is he is explaining and different... Maybe I should pull the curtains out. He's explaining and differentiating between two kinds of experiences of intensity or of pleasure or of novelty or of freshness that children have. And one is the permanent intensity and novelty and freshness that you would have in heaven. 
trailing clouds of glory, always feeling the power of that pre-existent state. If you were in that state, if you could hang on to your connection with it, you would always feel its power. But we're exiles. We've been born. So the question is, do we want to hang on to a memory of that place from which we are at least temporarily exiled? Or do we want to make the best of what we have? So Earth wants to comfort us for what we've lost with no unworthy aim. She works to make us forget the glories we have known. So there's that word glory again, the glory and the freshness of a dream. Trailing clouds of glory do we come. Now Earth wants to make us forget the glories we have known and the imperial palace whence we came. And she does it for good reasons. She does it so that we won't feel the kind of loss that Wordsworth is now feeling at the age of 33 or 34. The loss of that time. So Earth tries to make childhood as good a substitute as she can for what we've lost. So what does she do? Is it specifically childhood or is it all your life? Well, her inmate man indicates that it's all your life, but for him it's clearly failed. Right. So, so I, I'm, thinking, I'm reading it now, this is an analogy, because what he's lost, he couldn't possibly think about what it was like to be with God, but he's lost the joy of childhood. Yeah, and so the joy of childhood, so you can, here you can ask yourself something like intimations of immortality from recollections of early childhood is that forward-looking or backwards-looking? That is, is it a memory of immortality with its traces? So I know there is such a thing, even though I've lost it, even though I've become a mortal being. After all, that's what happens to Adam and Eve. They start out immortal, and they become mortal. So it turns out that it's immortal with an asterisk. Because if you're immortal, you shouldn't be able to die. But what they do is that the terms and services change once they click on the apple. Icon. Yeah, when you said exile, when you said exile, when you said that the children are in exile, kind of that reminded me of Adam and Eve. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. That Adam and Eve eat the apple and they go from being immortal to mortal. And so when they go from being immortal to mortal, it means that being immortal is, is something that won't necessarily end but can end. And so the same thing is happening here. And then the question is, so should we think, as the title seems to indicate, that we know from childhood that God, that there is this transcendent place, and therefore we can hope to return to it? That would be one understanding of the intimations of immortality. It wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't mean something literally different, but it would have a different consequence to our own thought. So one of the last words in the poem is mortality. That's a thing to notice. So the intimation of immortality might mean, look, there is a God, there is immortality, there is a heaven, and if you remember early childhood, 
you can remember your intuition of what it was like, which came from your familiarity with that place before birth. So hang on to that. Remember that so that you can return to it after death. So that could be one meaning. The other meaning could be, if you think back on early childhood, you remember immortality and what it was like, and that's what's over, that sense of immortality. That is, you were immortal, you were in that region, and you can know that it happened once. And that can make what you've lost seem all the greater. So two possible directions this poem can go in at this point. One is childhood turned into adulthood, and that sucked, and the only thing that's going to come now is death. Okay, that's the first four stanzas. Then what you get instead is, well, maybe childhood was already the decline, and that there is a region of immortality, and childhood was seemed great because we remembered that truly transcendent region of immortality. So that's what he's claiming in, in stanza five and onward. And that can go two ways. One is, so there's hope, because immortality really exists. So there's hope, and that's great because we can hope to return to it. And the other possibility is, boy, if I thought that losing childhood sucked in the first four stanzas, that's because I hadn't yet realized that I lost something much bigger than childhood. I lost immortality itself, and so that's a mega suck. And it's not clear which way this poem is going to go. In fact, it may not be clear which way this poem does go. But the thing to understand is the fact that you have an intimation of immortality, if you take that intimation seriously, it might measure not a hope of return, but the extent of loss. That we're continuous, our days may be bound each to each by natural piety, piety about nature, we are continuous, more or less, with our childhood selves. Do you guys all feel continuous with your, with your six-year-old selves? Do you feel that you're essentially the same person inside? I don't mean that you think the same things or care about the same things, but it was still you. You wouldn't call your six-year-old self someone other than you. Do you guys feel that way? Yeah. I think most people do. Um, you don't? No, I see. Okay. Why are you laughing? Not everyone does. I know, because the more I, you know, you've asked this question last I know. year, a similar one. About Elizabeth Bishop. And when, and when you're super aware of it, it's a, the hardest to actually feel <laughs> what, you're, what you really think. Yeah. Now that I'm aware of it, there's even a question of it now. But before, I, I might have just said yes, whatever. Yeah. But now that I've thought about it too much, it's not as clear as it was. All right. That's interesting. Um, time to read Proust. Um, <laughs> well, you read volume one. You read Combray, you read part one. Really yeah. Yeah. Six Oh six more books. Yeah. Well, no, but you didn't read the whole of Swan's Way, right? No. No, so you read Combray, which is part one of Swan's Way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there there are there's the rest of Swan's Way, which is 
you read less than half of it, plus six more books. And they just get better and better, just to tell Is you. Is that true? Yeah. You yeah. Me? yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, for my money, it's the best single work of literature ever written. Um, again, the, um, the idea would be, if you're continuous with your young self, then you can have a sense that you're, to quote Mark Strand, um, do you know the poem, Reasons for Moving? It's, in the field, I am the absence of a field. Um, actually, this may not be from Reasons for Moving. Um, anyhow, the line is, um, I am still the boy my mother used to kiss. So that's the last line of the poem that I'm thinking of. I am still the boy, he says at age 40 or something, I am still the boy that my mother used to kiss, which means that he is and he isn't. And that's why it's the phrase used to kiss. He is and he isn't. Um, but even the fact that he isn't doesn't prevent it from being true that he is. And that's the good part. That you're no longer the child who was at home in the world, which is another way of describing this, but it's still you who are not that child. You're still continuous with that. Whereas with the immortal being that we were before birth, we're not continuous with that. Wordsworth can remember a time when he remembered immortality, but he can't remember being that being up where God is his home. And if he's not going to return to the realm of the immortal, then it might be better simply to feel the childhood which is continuous with the now, is um, the great moment. So it may be either a gain or a loss, the platonic framework that he's using from stanzas 5 through 11. It may be that that's a loss and not a gain, that it shows, it measures more intensely how much he's lost rather than suggesting that immortality is still a possibility. And it may not be clear, as I say, which way this poem goes. But Earth is distracting the child. And what Earth does is says, well, there's fun we can have here too. And the result of that is what Wordsworth is going to be talking about in the next two stanzas. So behold the child among his newborn blisses, a four-year starling of a pygmy size. Are you, is someone looking at a different version later turns into a six-year starling? Yeah, that's what I see. Yeah, so two years later, when he revised it, he made it a six-year starling. This isn't too, this isn't, he revised it after finishing the whole version. Um, he is here thinking of Coleridge's son, Hartley. That is, there's a particular child he's thinking of. And, um, it's the same child as the infant in the poem Frost at Midnight, which is a Coleridge poem that we will definitely do, an amazing Coleridge poem, Frost at Midnight. And um, in Frost at Midnight, the Hartley Coleridge, uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's son, is only a few months old. Um, now Wordsworth used to spend time with him when he was a toddler and when he was a young boy. So he's actually describing um, Coleridge's son. Behold the child among his newborn blesses, 
a four or six years darling of a pygmy size that's kind of famous as the worst single line in early Wordsworth um, so it's okay if you think it's a horrible line because it's a horrible line um, see where mid work of his own hand he lies fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses with light upon him from his father's eyes so what does it mean to be fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses What are you picturing? Like yeah. maybe the mom trying to kiss and he's like... Yeah, yeah, she's... she's so a sally is a kind of attack in, um, uh, in war or in games. It's when, when you make a sally out is that everyone goes um, running towards the enemy. It's like a charge. Uh, it's from the French word sale, to go. Um, and... Um, so what you, you can get a picture of is that she's scooping up the little four-year-old and kissing him all over. And he's finding this fretful, ew, mom. So you're absolutely right. So fretted by Sally's of his mother's kisses with light upon him from his father's eyes. In the meantime, Coleridge is beaming at him. Um, see at his feet some little plan or chart, some fragment from his dream of human life. So another dream but now a dream of human life. He's playing with, with toys that are like what the adults use, shaped by himself with newly learned art, a wedding or a festival, a mourning or a funeral, and this hath now his heart. So he's drawing pictures of weddings or festivals or he's play acting or he's playing with dolls, and unto this he frames his song. So he's babbling, he's jargoning um, about a funeral or a wedding or a festival or a mourning. Then will he fit his tongue to dialogues of business, love, or strife. But it will not be long ere this be thrown aside, and with new joy and pride the little actor cons another part. So the little child, the four-year-old or the six-year-old, is like an actor learning parts. To con a part, you all know, means to learn a part. Okay, the word con, uh, we don't really use it that way anymore, although I think some actors do. Um, but in um, certainly in Shakespeare's day, when you have plays, actors would con their parts, and um, I think the word was still in pretty general use in Wordsworth's day. So to con a part means to memorize it, to learn it, to, fit, to learn your part in a play. So the little actor cons another part, filling from time to time his humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her in her equipage. So there he is pretending to be all sorts of different people and going around saying, I'm an old man, I'm an old man, all the way down to palsied age. So this little four-year-old or six-year-old is acting out all the adults and all the adulterers that um, he sees around him, <laughs> and um, he's just play-acting that, filling his humorous stage with all these things, as if his whole vocation were endless imitation, as if what a child's vocation is, what a child always does, is to imitate all those around him or it, which is what children do. They're always imitating play acting, cosplay of all sorts, is they're learning 
and Aristotle very famously says this, that the instinct for imitation in humans and in primates, although Aristotle doesn't say that, is an instinct to learn. That the reason we have drama, says Aristotle, is because imitation is so fundamental a human proclivity. And the reason it's a fundamental human proclivity is that's how we learn, is by imitating others. So that's what Wordsworth is, is describing here, which is a child imitating all those around it and play-acting and pretending all of these things. So filling from time to time this humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her in her equipage. What does equipage mean, anyone? Um, it actually means staff. So it would mean um, uh, people like... Uh, um, it, mean, it means a whole kit and caboodle, but it would mean um, like the coachman and like the servants, the livery servants, um, helping you in and out of the coach and so on. It's uh, the staff that you bring with you. So life, bring, life has a whole load of people. Life is like a, fi like a figure, allegorizes a figure with a lot of people waiting upon her of all sorts of different kinds. So you are going to become a servant to life is what um, this is implying, that life has a staff of people who attend upon her and anyone that you meet in your life is someone who's attending upon life. Life brings these people um, with her in her equipage. But the child doesn't know that. He's just pretending to be a servant, pretending to be a doorman or a policeman or a fireman or whatever you want. He's just pretending to be all those things. And then Wordsworth addresses the child and says, Thou whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity. So we're, we'll pick up on this, but just look at the structure of this stanza. Thou whose exterior sem semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity, thou best philosopher, and he talks about the you, it's all in address, it's all the vocative, thou little child, finally at line 24, still addressing the child. It's you, O child, thou little child, yet glorious in the might of untamed pleasures, on thy being's height, I have a question for you. Why, with such earnest pains, dost thou provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke, thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife. So that's the central question. Here the child is so close to immortality, so full of joy. Why, and you guys were all told or asked this when you were kids, I'm sure, um, children always want to be grown-ups. And grown-ups are always telling children, you're making a terrible mistake in wanting to be a grown-up. That's this moment here. Like, this is the best time of your life. And the little kid says... Seriously? No way. Can't be. When I grow up, I can stay up as late as I want, and I can have whatever I want for dinner, and everything will be great. So this is Wordsworth's version of that moment. Why do you want to be a grown-up when you're so close to clouds of glory? 
Okay, see you guys on Monday. Have a good weekend. Bye.